Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and welcome to the history of Sacardvelo, Georgia. I am your host, Roberto, and this is episode 5, A Caymanid, Georgia. You may have noticed the intro song was a bit longer this time, as I decided to start things off with a Persian flair, with the song Navai, Navai, before going back to Kisanes and Old Shepherd. Today, we'll be discussing Georgia during the Caymanid period, right up to the point where Xenophon's 10,000 briefly enter and exit the stage of history. We'll then talk about how far Persian rule possibly extended in the Caucasus region, what evidence for that exists, as well as a small tidbit about some historical Caymanid sites still somewhat standing in Georgia today. We previously mentioned that Cyrus the Great of Persia had conquered Media around 549 BC. The destruction of the Median state had caused tribes of several language groups to migrate to their relatively permanent homes into places such as Armenia. The Mushki and Tibol tribes settled in eastern Georgia, where we will see the kingdom of Iberia emerge. As for western Georgia, we saw the formation of the new kingdom of Igrisi Colchis. Take your pick of which name you prefer. Now, as most of you know, the Persians, especially the Achaemenid dynasty, are rather important to world history, but how are they important to Georgian history? What occurred during this time period? Well, buckle up your seatbelts and prepare for a wild ride, because we've got vague sources, not enough evidence to concretely say anything, and lots of I'm in danger moments from the Greeks, mainly from Xenophon. Local historical evidence that can tell us about the formation of the Georgian and Armenian nations is scarce since it doesn't appear anyone from the area wrote much down, forcing us to rely on later classical sources to produce the barest outlines of what we do know. As I've mentioned earlier, the Greeks only wrote things about the region when it involved them. So that's what we've got. It's thanks to the father of history himself, Herodotus, that we even know so much as we do about Caucasia in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, or the period of 600 to 401 BC. And we're going to cover a bit of 400 of Xenophon, so thank you Xenophon. The first great world empire, the Achaemenid dynasty of Persia, covered most of Asia Minor and Transcaucasia. And when we zoom into our own specialized area, we can see that the Armenians made up a number of satrapies, which is a territory of a satrap, which is something akin to the, a viceroy of a central region. They made up the 13th satrapy. The Susperi, Matiani, and Alarodi, which are remnants of the Urartian and Hurrian kingdoms, they formed the 18th satrapy. And the Mushki, Tibal, Macronis, Mosinokai, and Maris were in the 19th satrapy. 
While under the rule of the Medes and Achaemenids, the Georgians in Colchis and Iberia achieved some sort of parity, if not unity. They were able to do so thanks to the benefits of Achaemenid administration, which provided policing, organization of coinage, roads, and caravansary. A caravansary is basically a place along the Silk Road where travelers can spend the night. In other words, a hotel. Anyways, they received all these benefits, but nevertheless paid for it in the form of heavy taxation and military conscription, as they were, in the end, still a subjugated people. It's even noted that Colchis had to apparently send the Achaemenid King of Kings 100 boys and 100 girls every five years. These boys and girls were then used on four-year terms as indentured servants, on Persian projects such as construction on fortifications at Susa. The military conscripts were normally commanded by Persian officers, but occasionally served under fellow Colchians and Iberians according to some records. For example, in the wars waged against Greece by Darius the Great and later his son Xerxes, Colchian soldiers are reported to have served under their own officers. The southern parts of Colchis and Kartli were apparently integrated with the Achaemenid Empire until their destruction at the hands of Alexander III. Greek sources speak of a Colchian kingdom, ruled by people that bore the title Skeptolkoi, or scepter bearers, which is basically a semi-autonomous ruler. The Iranian provinces were ruled by the Varanaka, or cudgel bearers, which is basically the same idea. There is some archaeological evidence for this in the form of a golden scepter found at one Colchian site. It's unknown whether being a Skeptolkoi indicated a devolved or disintegrated administration. However, according to Professor David Brown of the University of Exeter, it might just be a term taken from the Persian court. Wealthy Colchians lived in stone houses with tiled roofs, the poor under straw thatch or in pyramidal log cabins on hillocks dug out of the marshes, Judging by their use of an iron plow and arable tracts of land, it appears that Central Colchis harvested grain, although the climate, especially near the coast, restricted the harvest to millet. Archaeologists even found iron balls used as catapult ammunition, which indicate the presence of a military with an artillery at its disposal. Sadly, little written records survive that can tell us about this. At most, the archaeological evidence found in the area consists of a few names on tombs here, Greek letters on coins there, occasionally a monogram in Greek and Aramaic on a black-laced kylix, and Aramaic letters on a fragment of gold leaf found at Vani. So yeah, not much to go off of there. Northern Colchis remained outside of the reach of the 19th satrapy, if we're to judge by the Greek ports in the area, as these free northern Colchians prospered. Archaeologists have dug up gemstones in a great variety of shapes, along with numerous small silver coins, which are mostly hemidrachms, which are Greek coins. Some of these coins were minted with a Greek letter to show their origin, with a bull or lion's head on one side and a human head on the other. They were produced from the 6th to 3rd centuries BC and indicate an advanced monetary system. The sheer quantity of importing goods such as Egyptian scarabs and Phoenician glass beads, indicate that Colchis lived up to its historic reputation as a great exporter of flax, hemp, pitch, and slaves. One Colchian slave was worth 153 drachmas, which was equal to six months of a skilled worker's wage. 
Colchis also exported pheasants, which are named after the Phasis River, which the Greeks considered a luxury. According to Plutarch, who wrote about 500 years later, the north of Iberia was just as autonomous as northern Colchis. Archaeological evidence dated to this period indicates the emergence of a flamboyantly wealthy elite that filled their graves with gold and jewelry, while the majority of people remained poor. Nothing ever changes, does it? Looking at other locations in our region, cities such as Ublisige, Urgnisi, and Caspi arose in central Georgia under a Caymanid rule, skillfully constructed from stone. Grave sites of this period contained a plethora of weaponry, implying a military elite ruled these territories, despite living under the Achaemenid Pax Imperialis. Uplisige is now dated to the 8th century BC, but when Colchis was densely settled with trading and manufacturing communities, Iberia's cities were primarily fortified wartime refuges, or temples dedicated to Anatolian gods that served clerics and pilgrims. Herodotus even describes the military dress of these Asian people, referring to our proto-Georgian tribes. Quote, the Moshi wore wooden helmets on their heads and carried shields and small spears with long points. The Tibareni and Macrones and Mosinokai in the army were equipped like the Moshi. The Maris wore on their heads the plated helmets of their country, carrying small shields of hide and javelins. The Colchians had wooden helmets and small shields of raw oxide and short spears, and swords withal. End quote. Given their similar cultures and environments, it makes sense that these tribes would wear things of similar fashion. Uniforms were rather expensive to make, however, so it's very unlikely any were standardized across the armies. These Georgian tribes remained in the grip of the Persians until the second half of the 5th century BC, around the time Jordan's march in the Persian campaigns against the Greeks. Nevertheless, Persian influence remained for years to come in other ways. For one, Persian words relating to politics appear in the Georgian language, eloquently testifying to the death of Iranian control of the government. Nevertheless, Achaemenid control over Colchis was not total. As mentioned earlier, Colchis was not part of the empire as a satrapy, but rather as an autonomous vassal state. As a semi-independent kingdom, Colchis Igrisi existed until the 3rd century BC and was a largely agricultural society with some ironworking, slavery, and commerce within their Greek ports. The historian Melikishvili characterized it as an, quote, early slave-owning society, a relatively underdeveloped class society in which there were still strong remnants of primitive communal society and where the quantity of slaves and the area in which they were used were insignificant, end quote. Returning to our friends, the Greeks, around 449 BC, a guy named Callius of Athens brokered a peace treaty called Peace of Callius, although we're not really certain it ever existed. Nevertheless, for some reason, Persians gained control of the Black Sea, unifying the Kartvelians for the first time in history. The first period of Iranian domination of Georgia, first under the Medes and then the Persians, lasted roughly 300 years from the mid-7th century to the mid-4th century, but left little historical trace, which is a sad thought to us learners of Georgian history. We don't get to really talk about ancient historical battles or political intrigue in Georgia because of this lack of evidence. Come on, where are the sources? I want my political intrigue to pop up. Regarding what we do know, we jump forward to 438 BC and bring in Pericles of Athens, who reconquered the Black Sea, 
probably including the ports of Colchis, Greek colonies located in southern Colchis, such as today's Pinchvnari near Kobuleti, had not been disrupted by Persian occupation. By 410 BC, the Achaemenids were caught in a cycle of fratricidal rivalry, causing the brother of King Artaxerxes, Cyrus the Younger, to hire Greek mercenaries to overthrow him, among them a band of 10,000 mercenaries led by a philosopher, historian, and military general Xenophon of Athens. This coup completely failed. And the mercenaries' retreat in 401 BC is recounted in the Anabasis of Xenophon. This gives us first eyewitness record of the modern state of Georgia in 400 BC. Xenophon reports that the Colchians, Macrons, probably the Mingrelians, and the Cardukoi were free from Persian servitude. The Cardukoi, who are mostly eastern Kartvelians, were at war with the Armenians, but the Hesperides, probably the Sasperi or Iberians, were subjects of Western Armenia under Tiribaz, who was probably the satrap of the 18th satrapy. As Xenophon marched through Asia Minor to the Black Sea, he observed the Colchians and other Georgian tribes had freed themselves from Achaemenid rule. Coming closer to the sea, the 10,000-strong mercenary band came to a mountain pass leading down into the coastal plain. They found their path blocked by groups of people known as the Calibus, Taukoi, and the Phasians. The Greeks attacked the defenders of the pass from above and drove them off. They then descended into the plain on the farther side and reached villages full of food and supplies. Xenophon's 10,000 moved deeper into the territory of the Taukoi, who lived in rather strong fortifications. As like most armies, Xenophon and his men were in desperate need of provisions and attacked one of the fortresses they had come across, but were held back for a time by the defenders, who were hurling stones and boulders at the Greeks. Once the fortress was taken, a horrible spectacle played before the eyes of Xenophon and his victorious men. The woman grasped their children and threw them down onto the rocks, and soon followed them. The men did likewise. Leaving little to no prisoners for the Greeks, the Dalgoy left a great number of oxen, donkeys, and sheep. After this scene out of a nightmare, Xenophon and his men marched through another 150 miles of the country of the Calibus. Here's what Xenophon said about the Calibus. Quote, These were the most valiant of all the peoples they passed through, and would come to hand-to-hand -to -hand encounters. They had corslets of linen, reaching down to the groin, with a thick fringe of plated cords instead of flaps. They had greaves also and helmets, and at the girdle a knife about as long as a Laconian dagger, with which they might be able to vanquish. Then they would cut off their enemies' heads and carry them along their march, and they would sing and dance whenever they were likely to be seen by the enemy. They also carried a spear about five cubits long, with a point at only one end. These people would stay within their towns, and when the Greeks had pushed by, they would follow them, always ready to fight. Their dwellings were in strongholds, and therein they had stored away all the provisions. Hence, the Greeks could get nothing in this country, but they subsisted on the cattle they had taken from the Dalkians. End quote. Xenophon's men reached the lower Choru River in Colchis, and there they conversed with one Greek soldier who was born in Colchis and exported as a slave. This soldier was able to interpret the local Mingrelian-speaking Mars and Macron slash Zan tribes, who had a coastal city named Giminas. Herodotus thought the Tiberanis and the Chalibis, who were named for their skills with iron smelting, were identical to the Mingrelians. The only specifically non-Cartvelian people that Herodotus records are the Scythians, 
who are presumably the remnants of the nomadic invasion three centuries earlier. Leaving Trebizond westward for Gerasun, Xenophon encountered the Quarsa Mosinokoi. Despite the resemblance to the name of Saniga, they were located in northern Colchis and may have been Svans or Mangrelians, and despite their custom of living in fortified towers, the Mosinokoi were not Kartvelian, as their name derives from an Indo-European and perhaps even Thracian word meaning tower. They are memorable for Xenophon's horror at their acrid wine, diet of salted dolphin, copulating in public, and setting fire to towers in which their kings were imprisoned. See, that's how I know the Mosinokoi are not Kartvelian. Georgians with bad wine? That is a sentence you'll never hear anyone say. Georgian wine companies, I'm willing to take a sponsorship for y'all, just saying, nudge nudge, wink wink. Free from Persian authority, these West Georgian tribes had hostile relations with the Greek merchant ports. Various tribal alliances fought with one another almost constantly, covering the landscape of fortified settlements. There were no major towns in the area, and people were generally politically fragmented along tribal lines, constantly at war with one another. When the Greeks returned to eastern Anatolia 70 years after Xenophon's journey, they brought with them radical changes to Georgia and, well, the rest of the world. Now, who brings about this change? Some Macedonian guy named Alexander III. We have a tradition of some very humble people on this show, but before we can affix the great epithet onto Alexander, he needs to do something of note. Now, I want to focus in on one of the things I mentioned much earlier. How far did a Caymanid rule stretch in Georgia? When did it start? How did it even look? Well, I found a rather nice article that answered this. We don't know exactly when Achaemenid rule began in the Caucasus region, but we do know that it was at the latest around 513 to 512 BC during the course of Darius the Great's first Scythian campaign. This Persian domination of the northern area was brief, and some archaeological finds show that the Great Caucasus region ended up forming the northernmost border of the empire during most of the Achaemenid period after Darius. What we know about the conquest and annexation of Armenia as a satrapy is thanks to the Behistun inscription, which is a large lock relief that summarizes the life and achievements of Darius the Great in multiple languages, much like an Iranian Rosetta Stone, allowing us to decipher so many old works. However, it's rather difficult to say what the true northern borders of the Achaemenid Empire were. Natural borders in the Caucasus, such as the Phasis slash Rion and Cyrus slash Kura rivers, and even the Great Caucasus mountain range are pretty good guesses, but it's not possible to reconstruct detailed boundary lines during this time period. As I've mentioned several times in this podcast, the Caucasus region is rather neglected in our classical sources, so historians have brought it upon themselves to speculate about the 18th and 19th satrapies, as well as the Colchian vassal state. Some historians doubt that their Achaemenids ever went beyond the Armenian plateau, while other historians such as Lorkipanitze, believe that Kakieti may have been part of the Achaemenid territory, but not Caucasian Iberia north of the Kura River. One other theory is that the entirety of modern Georgia belonged to the Persians, but most likely as an autonomous region. It's hard to say how the Persians divided up and governed the Caucasus region. Some records such as Herodotus' satrapy list do exist, but it's not entirely appropriate for use in the reconstruction of the imperial administration or historical geography. One way to reconstruct it is to see how the military campaigns against the north were organized. As mentioned earlier, Darius was involved in a campaign against the Scythians. He most likely attacked them with a pincer maneuver, 
where two different battalions closed in on one area like a giant pincer, hence the name. One battalion marched from the west after crossing the Bosporus Strait and the Danube River, and the other battalion came from the Caucasus and invaded the area north of the Pontus region from the east. While this looked to be an excellent use of highly sophisticated tactics because, come on, who doesn't love pincer movements, sometimes the best plans are laid to waste. Darius got as far as the dawn in modern-day Russia, but the campaign ended badly as Darius could not force the Scythians to face him in battle, and he had to abandon the fortresses he was building along the Oraris River, pushing the border of Achaemenid control back to the Caucasus Mountains. This still leaves us with the question of how far the eastern border stretched. After the conquest of the Caucasus, the region may have included Colchis as an administrative subunit of the Satrapy of Armenia, or even as its own vassal state. I've been using vassal state because to me it makes the most sense, but I'm not a historian, so don't take my full word for it. There are also reports of the plans of operation formulated by the Scythians and against the Achaemenids around the same time period when the Caucasian territories were under Persian rule. The Scythians planned to attack Media following the Faces River, which is of course in Georgia. A clue to the edge of the Persian Empire may even be given by Xenophon himself after his return following the Battle of Kunaxa. Marching in the direction of the Black Sea coast, the Greeks passed through the territory of the Colchians, the border of which would not have gone further than Trebizond. Nothing indicated the Greeks were near the border of the empire. If anything, the Colchians were settling on imperial territory since their estates were situated at Phasis, and that river could not have been used to mark the border. The next logical choice is the natural barrier to the north, the Great Caucasus. Wait, can't architecture tell us something? Persian people build Persian architecture, right? Well, the influence of Achaemenid rule in the area would be hard to see unless they stuck around for a long time and built a lot of structures. We can't tell what these buildings look like based on the ground plans that have been uncovered, but there are other clues such as stylistic touches on columns which show up at sites across the region, including from the modern day Georgia to Armenia and Azerbaijan. All of these clues support the theory that the region belonged to the Archaemenids for much longer than other evidence would indicate. Speaking of Achaemenid architecture, Let's talk about some of the buildings and sites that are still around today and how they ended up influencing Georgian artwork for years to come. We'll have oh so many pictures of these up on the website and social media. Several remnants of Achaemenid architecture have survived the eons to be uncovered by archaeologists in Georgia. To start off, the remains of a monument were discovered in the Alazani Valley in the easternmost region of Gumbati, built around the 5th or early 4th century BC. The site consists of fragments of at least five bell-shaped pedestals and a torus made of local limestone. It's currently hypothesized that there were two columned halls or porticos, as well as an entrance hall in the western part and a main hall in the center. We don't know if the central part was roofed or designed to be an open courtyard. It's assumed that due to the size of the building and the architectural decorations, that it might have been an administrative building that was later used for religious activities. We know for sure it was not a temple, but the towers, protrusions, and minor fortifications indicate we can't rule out that it might have been a palace of some kind. We can see similar prototypes of this building in Persepolis and Susa, so Gumbati might have been the residential palace of a Persian officer or a local chieftain. So, that was probably the one palace that's been uncovered, so let's talk about temples. We have found three times as many temples, <laughs> math joke. The three we have uncovered are the Samadlo Ritual Tower, the Zikiagora Temple, and the Serke Temple. The Samadlo Ritual Tower is located on the banks of the Kura River in central Georgia. 
It was probably built on the top of the hill in the 5th or 4th century BC and is strikingly similar to Iranian prototypes, such as the Zendan e Sulaiman in Pasargadai. Archaeological evidence and documents attest to the ritual function of the tower. What are they? I don't know. I couldn't find anything in English regarding that. The Zikiagora Temple is located on the Zikiagora Hill of Georgia. It was an architectural complex encircled by stone walls and rectangular towers. Most scholars assume that it was most likely a sanctuary, but only two of the buildings can be considered Achaemenid temples. Most ancient buildings that have been excavated so far belong to the Hellenistic period, which we'll cover relatively soon, if the sources allow. However, some findings resemble the bell-shaped pedestals found in Gumbati. A bull-shaped column head was found on the surface of the temple, but dates back to the 3rd or 2nd century BC. Exactly how is that? That's not the Achaemenid era. Well, it's most likely because this column head is an imitation of those found in Persepolis and Susa, as the rounded saddle don't match the original in presentation or in decoration, but is pretty close to one of the original styles. This sanctuary is related to Zoroastrianism and would have functioned in a similar manner to the temples found in the east. So, if the bull-shaped column heads were built in the post-Achaemenid times, it shows the longevity and influence of Achaemenid architecture in Georgia. Back to the most eastern part of Colchis, the remains of a building have been found near the modern village of Serke, hence its name of the Serke Temple. It's supposed to be a temple, but up to now, the plans and map of the place have not been officially published. Two limestone column heads have been found and are believed to have been built in the Achaemenid workshop, with Serke becoming the center of the region in the 5th century. Persian influence has long stayed after the end of the Achaemenid Empire, with many in the region adopting and adapting Persian architectural styles to their own. Well, that's what we have for today's episode. Join us in two weeks' time as my editor, Brendan Foster, and I discuss Apollonius of Rhodes, Jason and the Golden Fleece. It might also be the Argonautica, but that's the title of my copy of the book, and I'm sticking with it. It'll be a fun little myth episode in which I'll essentially condense the story for you and read it, and then start talking with Brendan about the story itself and what it means to Jordans today. He'll tell you about his credentials on the show. As I've mentioned before, if we're not on any streaming service, please let me know and I'll attempt to get onto it. Also, we finally have a YouTube channel if you prefer subscribing there to get videos. And, as always, we need iTunes reviews. I know, I know, we ask a lot for iTunes reviews. Well, I've asked maybe once. But most podcasts ask for iTunes reviews. And, honestly, I want to help this show grow and kind of expand it towards so other people can, you know, enjoy it and see what's going on. Because I love Georgia. I even have the place tattooed on my arm. So that shows how much I like it. But, you know, you could always show them how, you know, this show works. And I don't know. I like the show. I'm enjoying what we're doing. So if you have anything you want to say, feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacramento, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacadvelo.com or on our email at thehistoryofsacadvelogeorgia at gmail.com. Sacadvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Madlaba da Nakbamdis, and thank you for listening to the History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. See you next time.